Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking this evening in Judges chapter 12. Judges chapter 12. This is God's Word. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, are you an Ephraimite? When he said, no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzon of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdin, the son of Hillel, the Parthenite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdin, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite died and was buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. We thank you, O Lord, for your word. The grand reminder that we've already heard that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray again, speak, O Lord, by the power of your Spirit, that your servants might hear and see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a verse that I often call to mind. It's Proverbs 10.19. Maybe you've memorized it. Maybe you have not goes something like this. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is prudent. Now, it would always help me if I recalled that before I said something, not after I said something. But I think we could all agree, words matter. Words matter. What words we say matter. How we say them matters when we say them, even perhaps where we say them, it all matters. We are finishing up this night 
the last, not the last, the second to last major judge, Jephthah, his rulership, his judgeship, he has been told to us as the mighty warrior. He is the outcast who has been brought back to lead. He's the one who's made a foolish vow. His words have often helped and hurt him. And so tonight, we're not looking at a vow as we did last Lord's Day. We're looking at a password. But can't we agree that words matter? Some words bring life or death. And isn't that what we were reminded of last week? And even in the book of James, that there's something about our words that, that, well, it pulls the curtain back of our hearts. Whether we like it or not, it says something about what's going on inside. And so we get another glimpse of that tonight. The truth that our words matter and in fact, how deadly might they be? And so I want to look at this text in two points. Two words, in fact. Pride and peace. Our first point, Judges chapter 12, you can see it in the first six verses. We'll look at pride how do we set the scene? If you are the reader, what are, you, what are you needing to be prepared to see? How do we understand what we are looking at? I think Proverbs 16, 18 succinctly summarizes those, words, those uh, verses. And you know that verse quite well, don't you? Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Our beginning chapter is taking that proverb and it's demonstrating it for us in real time, in real life. What does that look like? Our text opens up and Ephraim has crossed over. They're coming to meet Jephthah. But you remember, we're kind of coming off the heels of Jephthah in this defeat of the Ammonites. Things have gone well. God has delivered them. And then Jephthah makes a foolish vow. This is our context when you pick up verse one. And so what would you imagine this tribe, one of the 12, as they come to meet Jephthah, how would they introduce themselves? How would they begin this conversation? They're not there to say, how can we pray for you? We know something terrible has just happened. They're not even there to say, how can we encourage you and thank you for the work that you have done on behalf of Israel? You, you destroyed some 20 cities. They're not there to pray for him. They're not there to encourage him. They're not even there to befriend them. What are they there to do? They're there to fight. They're there to cause a storm. Now, before we go too far, I want you to kind of understand this scene that perhaps Jephthah would have known well, but we might not. What, what are the two parties that we're looking at? We, well, yes, it, it is it's Jephthah, the Gileadite. He's the son of Gilead, and it's the tribe of Ephraim. Now, if you remember something about Ephraim, and we'll talk about it momentarily, but we remember them showing up in Judges chapter 8 with Gideon. 
But where does Ephraim come from? There's something quite interesting when we learn the history of Ephraim. You know, Ephraim, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, in chapter 48, Jacob in chapter 48 and 49, he's, he's blessing his sons. He recognizes that he's about to die and he's, he's providing a blessing and inheritance on all of his sons. And Ephraim shows up there. There's this beautiful picture in chapter 48 that I think often we could just kind of skip over because there's this adoption that really takes place and it is that of Jacob blessing and calling his sons, as it were, Ephraim and Manasseh. But do you know why I'm saying it's an adoption? Ephraim and Manasseh are not the sons of Jacob. They're the sons of Joseph. Have you ever thought for a moment, it's an interesting question when you think about the 12 tribes of Israel, wouldn't, wouldn't we expect to see a tribe named after Joseph? Why is Joseph not named as a tribe? It's because both of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are adopted by Jacob. And in fact, if you read Genesis 48, do you know what you find? These two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, They're put on the same playing field as Reuben and Simeon, the olders. Essentially, his grandchildren, they have just become equal, those children with their uncles. That's the inheritance that they're going to receive. Here's Ephraim, but here's Manasseh. And do you remember Jephthah? He's the son of Gilead, which comes from Manasseh. And so you've got a real family tie here. Two brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh, many years ago, and you're looking at it, come to a head in our text this evening. But remember we saw Ephraim in Judges chapter 8. I mentioned that. In Judges chapter 8, that's that's with Gideon, and they didn't look so hot there, did they? Gideon, is he's got the king of Midian on the ropes, he, he's, he's on the run and, and Gideon's going after him and, and he's, he's ready to go fight and he's about to recruit people and, and yet there's like a timeout and it's Ephraim and they're not saying to Gideon, well, how can we help? What can we do? What do they say to Gideon? You didn't ask our opinion. You didn't ask what we thought about this war, this battle between you and this king of Midian. Why have you not considered us? We're Ephraim. Don't you know something about who we are? And so Gideon calms them down quite diplomatically. And if you remember, he continues. But then yet, here we are again in Judges chapter 12. And Ephraim is saying something very similar. We're Ephraim. You didn't ask our opinion. You haven't come to consider what we think. Jephthah doesn't play the role of Gideon, does he? Ephraim wanting credit. Maybe even to the point of saying, I know something about you, Jephthah. You're that half-breed. Surely you can't be the one who's going to get the glory for this fight There has to have been something else. How dare you not ask what we 
think or what we would want to do. You could imagine how Jephthah might even respond. Knowing their family history, perhaps even a flashback of, maybe they're right, I am illegitimate. What has happened? But they don't stop. You you read the text and perhaps it made you a, a bit uncomfortable because it wasn't just simply Jephthah, you didn't ask. They went further and said, we're gonna burn your house down. Now you can imagine Jephthah standing there with the sights, the, the memory stained of the last fire he just saw, the sacrifice of his daughter. Perhaps he can even see it in the background. And here they are, Ephraim. They're taking it another step. We're after you and your whole house. We're going to burn it down. That's fighting language. It's kind of a scene you can imagine in a on a football game, perhaps. It's that time you, you wish you had. You, you see the coach running down the sidelines and, and he, he sees that his team, they, they don't have enough men on the field. They, they don't have the right play called. It's gonna be a disaster if that snap comes. And so he's trying to get a timeout called. We need Coach Ephraim here for a moment. Guys, Ephraim, we need to have a, a moment of a, a huddle. Have you all considered who you're talking to? I know that you're mad, Ephraim, but this is Jephthah. He's the mighty warrior, you see. This is not Gideon, the anxious one, who likes to hide and ask that someone else go, this is Jephthah. He's been fighting his entire life. He's from the streets. He runs the streets. When he gets in a fight, he wins. Don't you think, Ephraim, perhaps you should walk it back just a bit? I'm not sure you know who you're talking to. They don't get that little pep talk. And Jephthah doesn't play Gideon. He says, "Uh, you want to fight? I'll give you a fight. And now you have a civil war breaking out. Israelite versus Israelite. Here it is. The people of God fighting Amongst themselves, they're not arguing, saying we, we don't like one another. They're killing each other. There is a civil war right before us. And in fact, it's going to continue. We'll see it explode later on, even in this book. But Jephthah says something. Did it catch you by surprise? What does he say in, in verse 2? I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And then he goes on and he provides a helpful perspective, doesn't he? And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. There's this understanding of a divine sovereignty, but but don't you hear what he's saying to them? It's not simply, Ephraim, that we won, that we defeated the Ammonites. It's the fact that it's God on high who has blessed it. Look, it's not me. It's, it's the Lord who's at work here. Don't you see? But they don't. They want the glory. And so Jephthah doesn't soothe them. He doesn't flatter them doesn't encourage them. They fight. 
and people die. People die. I noticed an interesting observation. I even brought it up this morning with our senior pastor. We've been looking at children's Bibles. We have so many. And you know, I thought it'd be fun if we could find some children's Bibles and they could follow along with the text in which we're preaching. I've got a theory. It might not be right. But do you know I have not found a single children's Bible that references Jephthah? You can find children's Bibles and, and they'll talk about the book of Judges, but it, it's, it's quite, well, it's, they lower it. We go from Gideon to Samson. We skip over a major judge. And I've been trying to scratch my head. I wonder why. Why would you do that? I understand that what we heard last week, the vow, how, how difficult that might be for children. Or even perhaps in Judges chapter 10 and 11 with some of the fighting and the idolatry but I, I have found it quite interesting that what we're suggesting, even to our children, that even though there's something quite difficult, we don't want you to know about it. And I have found that that's not just true in children's Bibles. You know, brothers and sisters, I've read many of commentaries on this passage, and I had a seminary professor say something like this, and, and it becomes more and more true the longer I'm in ministry. He, he said, you can get a PhD in about anything. It doesn't mean it's worth anything, but you can get a PhD in about anything. And what he's really saying is that those letters, they look fancy, but they don't always mean quality. I've read many commentators who have the same similar struggle as a children's Bible. They try to take this passage and they try to twist it. They try to say, no, that can't be the case. In fact, one goes as far as to say, you know, Ephraim really didn't have a problem with Jephthah. The, the issue was Jephthah just wanted more power. And if Jephthah would have just stayed in Gilead, it would have been okay. But, but he decided to come into our territory and he wanted some of our land and that's where it stops. And so you're going, I could understand that argument, but where can you read that? Verse one says what? Ephraim went after Jephthah. They went to him. And so they build this argument and they go, it doesn't stop there. You read it right in verse two. When Jephthah says, I called you, they go, you know, he didn't really call him. They said, that's conjecture. The narrative doesn't confirm it. And so I'm scratching my head going, but it says that he called them. Do you seem to have less conjecture? You think that it can't be true because they said it was true? What I'm suggesting to you is I understand how difficult this text is. This is where pride creeps in. When we begin to read our Bibles and go, I think I need to correct that just a bit. It's a little bit too harsh. It's a little bit too dark or a little bit too difficult I'm uncomfortable, I don't understand it, and I want to caution us. Do you remember what we confessed together? No prophecy was brought about by men, but it is of God. It means he has every word in here for a very good and truthful reason. We've got a civil war going on 
Perhaps what started the Civil War is what many might call the racial slur that was used against Jephthah and Gilead. You can read it in verse 5. When any of the fugitives, or excuse me, in verse 4, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. They, they, that's tribal, that's clan insult. You're going after the people. And so you can read the, the civil war that breaks out. And this mighty warrior Jephthah, he's done this before, you see. He knows, well, here's a fight. I need to get the higher ground. I need to have the strategic spot. And so he goes essentially for the bridge, the fords of the Jordan. We're going to go and man the part where people have to cross. And so they go and they, well, they get control of it. And you can imagine the question that's coming is, but we're still in the same country. What do we do when people in our country try to cross. How do we understand the difference? We need a password. You got to have a password. Do any of your children have passwords to enter their rooms? This might not have been the password that you chose. It certainly wouldn't have been the one that I chose, but can't you see the strategy behind what Jephthah does here? The password, it's shibboleth. It could mean perhaps a flowing stream or torrent or possibly an ear of grain. But what is he saying? This password is to identify where people come from. My wife and I, years ago, not that many years ago, but when, I think it was 2012, we, we moved to Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, one of the things that we decided is when we were here, we were going to start a ministry on the college campus. We needed to get to know the campus and, and we needed to get to know the city. And so we were going to try different restaurants and go different places. And, and this one occasion, I honestly don't remember why we were here, but I was on the phone with somebody asking a question. I, I just didn't know really where I was. And so the person was asking me, well, well tell me, what do you see around you? So well, I can see the intersection. I'm at Jarvis and, and Hugger. And they said, what? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the intersection. It's, it's Jarvis and, and Hugger. And she said, you're not from here, are you? Said, why, why would you say that? She said, it's Gervais and Hugie. And I'm like, but it has an R. You're not from here. Or maybe you can think about words that are, they sound different. You and I say about a Canadian might say a boot. It tells something about you, doesn't it? And do you see what's happening here? Here's this password. Say shibboleth. And he says, sibboleth. He can't say it right. And what happens? He doesn't just die. 42,000 people died. You see 42,000 men lost their lives. It means that there were some perhaps 42,000 families without a father. Maybe a brother or maybe a son. And it's all because they are saying, you didn't ask my opinion, what I think we should do. 
They had pride, didn't they? The desire to be in control and center of things. The dominant tribe, you might even say, is dismantled by a word. One word. What's going on? We are... We're witnessing the effects of what idolatry does, doesn't, aren't we? You see, sometimes we're so trained, even perhaps in this book, as to say when we sin, we need to be prepared for the enemy. That is, those who are outside our bounds, coming in and oppressing us. But what Judges 12 is pressing on us is, oh no, dear friends, idolatry leads to an internal destruction. The people of God are fighting amongst themselves, being given over to their own desires. They are clearly ravaging themselves. It's this continual downward spiral, not by outside forces, but inside. They are just as deadly and dangerous to themselves as perhaps any foreign enemy might be when they decide that they will forsake the God of heaven and look for the desires in the world. It's still true, isn't it? You know, I've had to wrestle with this even recently. I think most of you perhaps are like me. We know that we can't say out loud, I'm the king. I'm in control. Ask what I think. Look at me. We we know that that's not okay. But isn't there moments in our life where we say something maybe just a little bit similar? God, you're so lucky I'm on your team. You drafted me and we're so much better off now. Can't you see how much more ground we take for the church? Look at my gifts my status, my personality, my abilities. I'm so glad that you chose me, but aren't you so glad that you chose me? It's this overestimation of ourselves and an underestimation of who God is and his glory. But then there's something so powerful if we would just pause. We're no different than Ephraim here, are we? The one word of shibboleth that they can't say that destroys them, are we not dealt with similarly? There's one word that dismantles all of us, Jesus. Because what does it mean? It means God saves, not Danny, not my works, not my abilities, not my efforts. God saves. It dismantles us. And yet, if we'll be reminded, it doesn't just dismantle, it develops within us a new life. Here I am. You are my son, as we heard. You have both the, the perhaps the blessing and, and even the curse of what Paul says. What's gonna happen at the return of Christ? Every Knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
It's a blessing if you're already saying it, if he's already dismantled the Ephraim in your heart. It's such a blessing to confess that. But if it's still there, if you're holding on to it, it's very much a curse. Because you didn't bend the knee because you wanted to. It's because you were forced to. It's pride. It's such a sad story. Because there's been such a great deliverance And yet what has gotten our attention these last several verses is not the deliverance that has come. We're not even focusing on the living, but the dead. You know, Dr. Davis, not in his commentary, it's it's an article that he has written. He makes an observation that I think is powerful. He looks at the major judges, not the ones that you remember, Ehud, Othniel, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Jephthah. And he splits them up. He says, look at what happens. When you get to this second group, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, all of their lives end in tragedy. Every one of them. Gideon dies and his son Abimelech destroys. Jephthah is here and you're looking at civil war. You know the story of Samson. Our pride doesn't provide deliverance. It demonstrates tragedy and destruction. But this passage isn't all about pride. There's peace. Did you see it? Did it perhaps grab your attention that we finish verse six and we open up with verse seven, Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. You're reading your Bible and, and I can imagine whatever translation you're looking at, there's, there's probably a paragraph break or at least the marker. We recognize the transition, the contrast, the, the difference, but that's not how it would have looked like in the original text. And yet the reader still would have known that there is something new here, something different. We went from Jephthah, who had one child and a daughter. And here we open up with Ibsen. He has 30 sons and 30 daughters. We have moved from you only have one child to now we've got 60. They're all married. What's being contrasted? Is it not the providence of God? Jephthah did only have one because God said he would have one. Ibsen has 60 because God said you would have 60. I understand that we're, we're looking at it a bit like a, like a human experience. And we're a little bit trained to focus on certain details and not the other. How would you know that? Because the providence of God shows up everywhere. We have just celebrated the wonderful birth of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And did you know that none of us gave any thought to the fact that there were a lot of deaths that took place when Jesus entered the world? Do you remember it was King Herod who sought after all those boys in Bethlehem? Mothers and fathers were crying tears. They've lost their child, but we are celebrating at the birth of the Son of God. It's the providence of God before us. You can read it in Acts. Peter, 
spared incredibly in prison. And yet James is killed by the sword. Why James and not Peter? Why Peter and not James? We don't know. And if you're in here tonight going, that's hard. I don't understand it. Welcome. But hard news doesn't mean it's wrong news. It doesn't mean it's bad news. It means it's hard. And we say, oh Lord, we, we trust you. We want to believe in you. And how can we believe in you? Because there's this picture that I think he provides in such a difficult providence of peace. How do we see the peace? Well, we read of Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. I'm not very long in the ministry, you see, but I'm perhaps going to get in trouble for even saying this publicly out loud, but you, you know, they examine us as pastors. They need to know how much you know. And do you know one of the questions? We'll only give one question. You know, one of the questions that they often ask you, sometimes on a written exam, sometimes on an oral exam, could you name a few judges? I have never heard anyone say Elon, Abdin, or Ibsen. Nobody's ever mentioned them because you don't have much information. There's no details. There's no miracle. There's no real background or story. And so we're so tempted to go, they must just not be important because there's not much here. And yet I think the lack of information is what's to draw our attention to them and go, don't you see It's not about Ibsen. It's not about Elon. It's not about Abdon. We're so trained to look at these judges and long narratives and look at the person of them. Gideon, look at all of his attributes or the lack thereof. And we fail to remember it's not Gideon we're supposed to see, it's God. We even sometimes train our children to do that. That children's song, Dare to be a Daniel? Don't be a Daniel. Look at the one that Daniel looked at. It will help you nothing if you're like Daniel. You need to be like Jesus. Look to the one that Daniel would look at. But it's a challenge, you see, because what we're trained to do is we don't read our Bibles Christocentrically or theocentrically. Christ-centered or God-centered. We read them meocentrically. Where do I fit in? You don't. Because it's not about you. It's why you don't know Ibsen or Elon or Abdon. And so when you're reading your Bible and you're going, I think there are some details missing. That's the signal. That's the clue that says you're not reading your Bible the right way. Dr. Davis says, it's as if scripture cries out, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, behold your God. And we respond, thank you, but we have found something a little bit more interesting. You see, that's what the Bible is doing when you open it. Look at him. Look at how glorious and beautiful and good he is to all that he is made. Now, how do you recognize peace? It's because what you read in chapter or verse seven, Jephthah died. Jephthah is no more. We learn something similar of Ibsen and Elon and Abdon, that they died. And it's that 
perhaps reminder of Genesis chapter 5, the long genealogy of so-and-so and they died, so-and-so and they died, and you didn't read it and you were very encouraged. It's just death, 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 death. But there's a point you see. It's what the psalmist is suggesting to you in Psalm 146. Do not put your hope in man. Do not trust in princes, in the son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. We do not put our hope in the princes, but in the king. That's what the scripture is saying because there's something missing and I understand that sounds slightly contradictory to what I just said, but you and I have been trained. These judges are, are dead. They died. And there's a detail that is no more. Jephthah's the first one. It says he died and it moves on. You don't hear the land had rest. Gideon was the last one who dies and we find out that there is rest for the land. There is no more rest for the land. The people of God will get no more rest until the time of Solomon. God's blessing has been removed from his people, from the judges. And he is saying, you will not get rest in these men, but only in me. Come to me and I will give you Rest. They, they have forfeited that, that rest of consummation, that, that rest of enjoyment, that rest of, of peace. It's that rest that you love to remember from the mouth of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, come to me. It's the rest if you're following along with us in our morning series that we're, we're coming to. In, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is going to, he's going to enter into the temple and he's going to grab the scrolls and he's going to open it and he's going to read from Isaiah chapter 61. And do you know what he's going to say to him? There's rest. There's rest. We learn of the year of the Lord's favor. And he's quoting from Isaiah 61. And what do we Learn in Isaiah 61. They have a one in seven mindset. There's a day of rest given to you and to me and to the people of God, every one in seven. And yet it doesn't end there. There's every seven years you get rest. The land gets a Sabbath year. Every 49 years, you get more than just a rest for the land, but all the people, it's called the year of Jubilee. And can't you see it? What is Jesus saying? I am the eternal Jubilee. Come here. Come to me and I will give you rest. Because it's Jesus who ends this refrain, you see. You don't find the refrain that says, and he died and the land had no rest. No, what we read, he lives. And he says, I will give you rest. Come to me. That's what the Lord's day is for, you see. It's the preparation for eternal jubilee that you and I are given by God himself a moment, 
a 24-hour period every week that says rest is coming, taste and see. You come into this place of worship, you, you, you exit momentarily the wilderness and what you get is rest. There's a, an American Puritan pastor, his name is John Elliott, not well known, but he is he's preaching a sermon specifically on how he loved the Lord's day. And there's a man by the name of Cotton Mather. You're not supposed to necessarily know who he is either, but he's, he's there and he's taking notes on this sermon. And he's saying, it's clear to me that this man, John Elliot, he loves the Lord's day. He's so zealous for it. And he writes in his notes, he says, if you're a believer and you prioritize worship, it's not just a one in seven cycle. It means you have spent one-seventh of your life tasting what is to come. You are preparing yourself, as it were, for heaven. And he says in his notes, you see, when the saints of God gather to worship, what they do is they prepare themselves that they're no strangers when they get there. They know where they are because they've been there so many times before. I didn't ask his permission, so maybe I'll hear about it later, but I had a professor who wrote a poem, and I'll close with it on that sermon. This is his poem. He entitled it, The Heavenly Sabbath. Now, when we get to heaven, will we know that we are there? Will we know the place to which we've come when we at last are there? Here on earth, where sin is found, it seems so far away. It will be such a different place when we arrive that day. Yet here on earth, our God has given a taste of things to come. He shows us what we can expect when we at last are home. He's given us our Sabbath days, sweet times of heavenly rest, and takes us from our earthly cares and show us we are blessed. In worship with the saints below is the presence of his love. Our praises form his earthly throne as he comes from heaven above. And the proclamation of his word is the sounding of his voice. It stirs our hearts with thankfulness and makes us to rejoice. The unity which the spirit gives makes whole what was broken in the fall. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. Tis our corporate life in the worship of God in praise and prayer and song, which brings to us the things to come from the place where we belong. So when we get to heaven, will we know that we are there? Will we know the place to which we've come when we at last are there? Oh, yes, dear saints, we'll know it well. When we enter heaven's door, our Sabbath days will have taken us there a thousand times before. I hope you know such rest, peace that God has killed, dismantled the Ephraimite in your heart and given to you the eternal jubilee, his son. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are that pride does destroy us. It it is meant to because we cannot sit on the throne by which you sit. 
we must be told, as we're reminded even by your servant John the Baptist, that Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And isn't it overwhelmingly joyful that the teaching of your word is those who would humble themselves are exalted by their Father. But those who exalt themselves, they in fact will be humbled. So teach us, O Lord, how to look to Christ for life, for peace, for rest, that this, the Lord's day, it's not meant to entertain us, but it is to prepare us for that which we will eternally do, to sing praises to our God, enjoying he who is our eternal jubilee, Jesus himself, whose name we pray. Amen.